Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. This is Aaron. And this is Mariah. And today we are super excited about our guest. We have Dr. Angela Gabella here with us. She is a board-certified functional neurologist, a licensed chiropractor, and fellow of the American Board of Brain Injury and Rehabilitation. She received her education from the Carrick Institute and was trained directly under the clinical expertise of Dr. Carrick. And we have been practically begging for an episode like this since we started because we feel so strongly about the importance of not just neurology, obviously most of us have seen a neurologist if you're listening to this podcast, but functional neurology and how important this is to our community and making sure that we're spreading awareness for what functional neurology is. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gabella. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. So I think a very obvious and good place to start is clarifying for our audience, what is functional neurology and what is the difference between functional neurology and sort of the general neurology that um, many of us think that um, we understand? (laughs) Absolutely. That's a question we get quite often. So uh, sometimes it's good to think about functional medicine because a lot of people have been to a functional medicine doctor and they know when they go there, um, that doctor is going to treat the whole person. And they're also going to um, try to find the root cause of their condition. So now going back to what functional neurology is versus your traditional neurologist, um, and a traditional neurologist absolutely has its place. However, um, my job when I'm seeing a patient is not just to address structural damage. So structural damage is... um, going to be more like strokes or bleeds, um, and it needs to be treated acutely, and we can see it on diagnostic. That's a big thing to understand, too. So when you're going, because people always say, well, I had an MRI or I had a CT scan, um, and nothing's wrong, but I have all these symptoms. So the reason why they have the symptoms is because it has to do with the way their neurons in their brain are firing and connecting to other neurons. And that's really who we are as people. So it's responsible for our humanism. Um, And when those get damaged and they become dysfunctional, there's symptoms and it gets overlooked and it's been overlooked for centuries. And we'll talk about it a little bit more when we kind of get on the topic of neuroplasticity and stuff. But in order to see those functional changes, you really have to do a complete physical exam and you have to look at the way their nervous system is actually working, what the output is. Um, we like to look a lot at eye movement and vestibular function because it takes the whole entire brain to carry out those things. But um, it's really just exactly what what the word means, functional. So it's one thing to have a structure going on that's responsible or like an end organ that's responsible. But how is that end organ functioning? So how is the brain functioning? How are those connections working and communicating with each other? Yeah, the number of people we hear who have said, well, my scans didn't show anything, but I'm still, I still feel like I'm suffering is pretty remarkable. And it, I think that's one of the major contributors to the mystery yeah, <laughs> that I a lot absolutely. of us have. <laughs> yeah. 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 
And it becomes so tough. Uh, it's one thing to have symptoms, but it's another thing to not get an answer as to what's causing the symptoms. And so um, in the traditional model, if you don't have structural damage, you don't really get answers as to why I'm feeling this way or how I can get better. And so that's very much where functional neurology comes in and plays an important role. Yeah, I know gotcha. we've heard a lot of people say that they, you know, went to their doctor and everything's fine, but they just don't feel fine. And, yep. you know, I think looking at the the structure is one thing, but trying to rehab, like it sounds like you guys do, the uh, the the consequences of whatever your injury was um, is a totally different game than what I think neurologists are focused on. And a lot of us end up getting pushed kind of down the psych road of, well, maybe you just need to talk about it, think about it. But it sounds like there's more that we can do than just... Oh, there's a ton more. And um, the beauty of when it comes to the brain and and changing and remodeling and rewiring... um, you know, it's a very new concept, the neuroplasticity that people are talking about, but it was it's actually been in our literature with research for centuries now. It just was very controversial, and it wasn't something that people were ready to accept. Um, I think it was probably early 1900s. I, I don't know if you guys have heard of uh, Santiago Ramon Cajal, but he's a big name, okay, in the neuroscience world. He, he coined, like, the neuron doctrine and stuff, but in his – and he's just absolutely brilliant, Nobel Prize winner – he has a nucleus in the brain named after after him. That's pretty important, but <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's pretty cool because you go back and you look at how um, accurate his research was, and he was dead on. But it wasn't accepted. It took years and years to be accepted. And to be honest, I believe, and I'm not sure if I'm right on the dates and stuff, but it was actually a neuroscientist out of um, University of California, San Francisco. Um, in 2016, okay, so think how recent that is, that was finally won a prize for the idea of neuroplasticity and that brains can change. So we were, we were, people were already talking about neuroplasticity, but it was, it was so far from being accepted. And also, then you got to think about the clinical application of it too. So it's, this is a very new field. um, And thank goodness we're moving in the right direction, because before there really wasn't many options for anybody who had a TBI. And even, you know, poor kids born with cerebral palsy, there's a lot you could do, you know, when there's birth traumas that just haven't been done for a while because it wasn't, um, it wasn't in our textbooks. It wasn't taught in school and it definitely wasn't widely um, accepted. So, wow. 2016, that really drives that point home. I mean, yes, (laughs) I know Uh, his, I'm going to pronounce this. I think it's, um, Merzenich is his name, Dr. Merzenich out of um, University of California, San Francisco. And finally, 2016, he was awarded for this, something that he had been working on for years. It was 30 something years. But I'm pretty sure like it was already in our media or like on social media about plasticity. Mm. And it still wasn't recognized within the science community. I mean, recognized meaning uh, officially. Why do you think that is? Do you have any theories as to why people would... Not agree with well, this Well, one deal? thing, yeah, one thing is that we think we know. When we do, we knew, we know a lot about the brain currently right now, but we actually know nothing. It is like the <laughs> field that um, it, it has the potential for so much growth and we're still learning. So since it's sort of like unknown compared to when you think about a, a cardiothoracic surgeon and different other subspecialties of the human body, 
um, that we're able to understand so much faster and easier and there's concrete evidence of it. It's sort of like it was this mysterious thing and people weren't ready to adapt and adjust like because if patients weren't just getting better or and here's the other thing going back to medications, most other organ systems, you can go on a medication and it really helps. It does the job. Now, when it comes to the brain, unfortunately, medications don't do well. In some cases, when you're lucky, a medication will work and it addresses the issue and fantastic. But even Parkinson's, I mean, there's so many Parkinson's patients that can't do L-DOPA because there's massive side effects and they could develop movement disorders and all sorts of things. Um, and to explain it briefly, the way it works. So if you take a supplement or you take a medication, it's going to be absorbed in your body and it's going to bind to every single receptor that is specific to that medication or supplement. And it's not going to ever be site specific, right? So every area binds in the body, it'll have a different consequence, which is fine in general until you begin talking about the brain, because the brain's going to have dopamine receptors, acetylcholine receptors, norepinephrine receptors all throughout the brain. And we can name all the neurotransmitters, but they're going to have receptor sites everywhere. And each receptor site is going to have a different consequence. So it may bind to the area you want to treat, but then it's also going to bind to other areas and it has massive side effects and not the results you want. So it's very difficult to be specific with medication. And when it comes to neurological disorders, it's super important to be specific as you can. So that's a big limiting factor. So in terms of um, neuroplasticity not being accepted, if um, you had a patient that had a stroke and you tried to give them a medication and their brain didn't rewire, didn't remodel, didn't get better, um, it was easier to kind of say, well, our brains are static. They don't change. They're plastic. You're stuck with you, what you got and you don't get any better. So that's sort of like the theory. And it's also more because of the fact that we just have so much to learn about the nervous system in general. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how the sort of long haul COVID cases and the neurological effects of COVID, how that might bring attention to this a little more in the future, because it's been uh, limited to, you know, a certain number of brain injury survivors and folks with neurological issues, but COVID might shine a spotlight on it for the better. Um, yep. Um, you know. I am right with you on that. And I really hope it swings towards the direction that um, people start accepting more of the fact that and it's an integrative approach too. Um, and unfortunately, I'll be the first to say that a lot of people don't know about functionalology. And if the provider, any provider in any specialty field, if they haven't had firsthand contact, um, they don't know to refer a patient to a functionalologist. PT is more common. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of PT, um, it's great that uh, they're doing more vestibular rehabilitation and stuff. So that's a little added bonus. But it, yeah, I do hope this is a movement that <clears throat> helps incorporate people that are really focused on the rehabilitation aspect of neurological disorders. And this COVID, um, it's not only having <clears throat> the brain fall consequence, which are classically um, very, very common when it comes to concussion or acquired brain injuries, but you're also seeing a lot of POTS patients. So mm -hmm. I don't know how much you guys know about the POTS, but that's actually um, a very common 
disorder. It's in the category of dysautonomia, and it can happen with acquired brain injuries, and it can happen with TBIs, and sometimes it happens from they don't even know. It could be an upper respiratory infection or a toxin in their environment, but it's incredibly debilitating. So it's just postural orthostatic tachycardia. So these are the people that stand up and their blood pressure changes, mm-hmm. um, and they pass out. Some of them are vasovagal, so it's a different different imbalance in terms of their parasympathetic nervous system being too high, whereas POTS, you have a high sympathetic, and that's where they get that tachycardia and the increased heart rate. But it's these people get stuck in their bed for the rest of life. They're not treated. And they progressively, if you if you think about it, if you can't get up and walk around your world and be in gravity, you're just going downhill. That's pretty so, terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. super terrifying. And now COVID is um, correlated with this increased risk of developing POTS. So that's going to be a big thing. Yeah. And there's my dad a- actually sent me an article um, that was describing some of the neurological symptoms that long haul COVID folks have been seeing. And he, it was talking about brain fog. And he was like, is this what you've been talking about all along? I was like, yes, yes, it yes. is. Right? <laughs> now you have people that are going to understand. So that's yeah. a little bit of a positive. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, Aaron, did you recently have a patient who had POTS at the hospital? Yes, absolutely. And we have a lot of patients actually that are suffering from Hmm. either POTS or just postural um, orthostatic hypotension. And that's um, the vasovagal component. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it really has such an effect on someone's mobility. And when you take someone's mobility away, what you're seeing is you're going to have increased rates of depression. You have increased rates of falling because they may be trying to get up and then they're falling down. Um, their whole life is taken from them because they can't mobilize. And it, it's just the the waterfall of effects from that lack of mobility is just huma- humongous. Um, yeah, not limited to the physical. I mean, the the mental health side of that, I cannot imagine. It's huge. Oh, People's cognition, control. like they lose cognitive yeah. function when you're not moving. Neither is anything else. It's yeah. Aaron and I were just do. talking about the importance of like moving and fitness. Oh, well, it's vital for life. And so yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to another topic because it completely mm-hmm. ties into this, and it's gonna kind of drive home. Um, why vestibular stimulation really helps remap so many connections in the brain. Um, But so for POTS patients, they stand up, right? Or let's talk about a normal patient. When we stand up or we bend over or we're running, right? We have to have a system, a sensory system that's saying that we're doing these things. So there are positional changes within gravity, right? So that system is our vestibular system. And very specifically, it's called the otolith. So there's one thing, there's semicircular canals, which means we rotate our head and we get a signal saying, hey, we're rotating. And then it shuts off. It has a time constant and it goes away. But then we have the otoliths, which are a part of that visceral system. And those are tonically on all the time. And they're the detectors of gravity. Gravity is always activating the otoliths. So when I translate upward, my otoliths from my visceral system are sensing that I'm translating upward. I'm standing up and it's going to fire into my central nervous system and it's going to go to the autonomic nervous system. It's going to say, hey, she's translating upward in gravity, which means there's going to be a force that's going to pull blood down to her feet. We have to instantly, we need to increase our heart rate. We need to increase blood pressure and we need to get blood up to the brain. And then within a couple seconds, we need to normalize it so that we're not getting the tachycardia. My heart rate's not pumping and pumping. It needs to come back to normalize. And so this is such a intricate, just marvelous system. And 
it's very complex. So things can go wrong in the system very easy, which you see it go wrong oftentimes with concussion or any type of brain injury. And then when I'm running, right, I'm not sitting down anymore, right? I'm translating and I'm running. I have a whole autonomic demand to get blood to my muscles, to get blood to my heart. And that's your autonomic nervous system doing it. So when it's done properly, we never think about it. When it's not done properly, you have the exercise intolerance. People can't move around. People can't stand up. Um, and so it's a really huge, and this is all orchestrated by the vestibular system and the autonomic nervous system. And we just think, oh yeah, this is great. It's no big deal. It happens normally. And then when little things break down, then it's like our world's over because if we can't move around and if our brain can't sense where our body is in space, we don't get the, the proper autonomic response for us to get vital function. The autonomic nervous system is literally vital function that we don't normally think about. So yeah. Um, it's a good example of one of those things that we take for granted because yeah. we sit up and sit down and move to the side and turn all the time. But, I, you know, like I had some vestibular issues after my brain injury and I had did not know anything about the vestibular system until I went to PT and they started telling me about the crystals in your ear. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, what are you talking about? <laughs> but this is the otolith is another thing. It's like, we do not think about these things. We are so lucky. It, the yeah. human body is amazing that all of that is happening just in the process of you standing up and sitting down. It's, it's marvelous. And you know, a funny little explanation of that is that we look at dogs are on four legs. Most of animals are quadrupedal pedal where we're bipedal we're two we stand on two legs and so if you were to see a dog like and in the circus we do and they're on two legs and they're jumping around they're marvelous and we think oh my god that's incredible and we forget the fact that we literally have a gait system our ability to walk and move it's controlled by our frontal cortex it goes all the way through the brain stem areas there's so many nuclei that are super important and when it goes wrong you see massive changes in gait, whether it's a schizophrenic patient, whether somebody just suffering depression, you will see a change, the, a change in their uh, stride length, which is the way we step. They'll have a decreased arm swing, and it's all correlating to what's going on on a cortical level just to get up and walk and be bipedal on two feet. It's really an um, incredible, incredible thing. What yeah. types of patients yeah. are you seeing that have um, POTS-type symptoms? So POTS is more common in females, and it's generally young, healthy females. So um, you tend to see it a lot of times in female athletes because they're more exposed to getting concussions. Um, and then they, being a female, we just have a higher risk of it. But sometimes it's just completely normal people that don't even have an episode of so this is where it gets really frustrating for the patient because they're kind of like I had no idea what caused this and so there's different things that impact your brain um, and when you think of your autonomic nervous system you always want to think of blood because the autonomic nervous system is incorporated between the sympathetic and parasympathetic and it's always going to be controlling the blood flow to different organ systems and it does much more but or, blood is vital and getting blood to the right places is vital so if you had um, some sort of virus or an upper respiratory infection that can cross that blood brain barrier you could be you can end up developing developing pots out of this but you wouldn't to have that respiratory infection and think like oh this could lead to pots you know yeah. so all of a sudden they develop these symptoms and they're like what the heck happened to me so sometimes it's you know idiopathic they don't understand what happened and sometimes it's concussion or um if anybody has a stroke so here's another thing strokes cause it all the time um 
And that's probably where you're seeing it or any type of ischemic bleed, and then they develop POTS. And so it's really just things that can damage the brain could potentially cause it. I know we commonly see, well, we need to better hydrate. Let's pop a pair of compression stockings on. Let's just go slow and hope for the best. But I mean, Mm -hmm. I've seen patients struggle with this for weeks and weeks, months, years on end without really any, um, you know, they're not, they're not getting better. Is there something that we're missing here? So, and that's the other thing where medication doesn't do so well. Um, Salt pills are are very common because it helps balance out the blood pressure system and things like that. So a diagnostic test for POTS is what they call the tilt table. So you you take a patient from lying down and you go at increments to, to standing up position and you measure the changes in their blood pressure and heart rate. And then we know there's a normal variant of how much it should change. Well, these patients generally are like, there, it changed vastly. It's so significant. Um, and tilt table is used as typically just a diagnostic test, but it is actually so powerful to be used as therapy because here's the thing is the first abnormal processing system is going to be your vestibular otoliths and they're firing rapidly high. They're, they're having this accentuated response. So then they say someone's moving either um, excessively or they say they're moving, they're not moving at all. So it's not sense, sensing this change in gravity. And so the heart rate and blood pressure cannot respond accordingly. So if you were to take a patient at on a tilt table test and they go from lying, then they go 15 degrees up, 30 degrees up, and you stay there and you stay there until the blood pressure and you do other therapies that fire right into the autonomic nervous system. So you can activate the vasal nerve. You could activate the trigeminal nerve. This trigeminal nerve is very uh, superficial on the face. So it's more accessible, but these nerves fire right into the same reticular formation areas in the brain centrally that control the autonomic nervous system. And you do so, and then you measure, is this increasing the um, blood pressure the way we want? Is it bringing down the heart rate? Is it decreasing that sympathetic load so we can allow? So parasympathetic is the largest nerve for that. It's going to be your vagal nerve. I'm sure you guys have heard a little bit about that. It controls your heart, contractility, it controls your gut and the mobility and things like that. And there's ways of activating those systems. There's also ways of inhibiting your sympathetic nervous system. So a saccade, a saccade is a fast eye movement and it's generated in the pontine paramedian reticular formation, the same area that is the autonomic nervous system and it'll inhibit sympathetic. So it allows the parasympathetic to come on so that blood pressure increases, heart rate decreases. And so you just kind of combine different therapies and you keep measuring to say, what what change are we making? It's not, it's not guesswork. I'm not saying, like, oh, I'm just going to do this and this and it's going to work in this patient. No, you have no idea because everybody's brain is different. Everybody has different networks, different connections. So you measure it, see if it's making a change. And then once they're where, at that blood pressure and heart rate, you want them to be, then you go to the next um, incline level. So let's say we move up to 30 degrees. And you do that enough. And what it does, it allows the brain to rewire those proper connections so Mm. somebody can move throughout their world without having these crazy um, changes in their autonomic nervous system. Now, patients who have POTS longer, it's it's longer treatment. It takes a longer time to because it's such a sensitive system. Um, When you're dealing with blood supply, uh, so as I'm talking to you guys, I tend to be a talker. I use my hands. I'm (laughs) animated, right? So... 
as I'm doing this, I'm having to shunt blood not only to my cortex to th that's going to supply the area that's going to allow me to think of what I want to say to you, but I'm also shunting blood to the area that controls my lips and my articulation and my language centers. And I'm also shunting areas to my hands. And this is all done instantaneously and it's orchestrated perfectly so that we can sit here and talk about this stuff. And it's so complex. And we think when it's done well, we don't think a big deal. But if somebody stutters or if they can't think and then they're in there, sometimes it's called cognitive dysmetria. So it means that they're, you're trying to link your thoughts together, but all of a sudden you just lose your train of thought or things don't string together so well. And that'll happen if you can't get blood to a certain area. And so that autonomic nervous system is so unbelievably important. So unfortunately with some patients that have like, haven't found the treatment or been dealing with it for a long time, they need a longer, um, form of treatment to get their autonomic nervous system respond accordingly. Other patients, if it's it's new um, and they have other areas in the brain that is still very healthy, it's much faster. You know, it might only take two treatments and they're back to being normal. But yeah, it's a it's a disorder that I hate to see go untreated. There's so many organizations out there like dysautonomia support groups because of the fact these people suffer and they do not know um, where to get help from. And the longer it takes and you develop the depression and mental health and just excessive amounts of anxiety. And there's a lot of comorbidity uh, stuff that begins to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Is there any and particular reason women are more susceptible to it? So women's brains are very different than male brain. And it's a good thing. Um, and it's pretty fantastic. But we have a lot more connections. We're, we're physically going to be naturally a little bit smaller. But we have a ton more connections going on. And we also have a hormonal system that affects our brain function too. And we could talk a little bit about that. Um, but Female concussions or female-acquired injuries are vastly different than male-acquired injuries. And when you have more connections, like even a more intelligent person, they're going to have more connections within their brain. But what that means is if you have um, a head injury, you have a lot more networks that can be damaged quickly and things go wrong and you have more emotional consequence mm -hmm. to it because we are more emotionally intuitive. We have more connections in those areas than male men do. But what that also means is we suffer more. And, and I, that's not to say that males don't suffer more, but um, then there's also the uh, physique of females. So like our neck mechanics are different than males. Um, so even like our vestibular ocular reflex, and if we have a whiplash injury, it's going to be a little bit more consequential for us than it would for a male because their neck is more stabilized. They have less flexibility, things like that. Um, and then, so for females, we have different, our vasculature is different, our muscle mass is different, and it just um, gives us a bit higher risk to have those yeah. dysautonomias. Side note, um, I'm adding the word saccade to my Scrabble list. Good, good. <laughs> this is a good I one. We'll add it with sequelae. <laughs> yeah, sequelae and saccade. <laughs> uh, that's too good. Yeah, and there's also pursuits. So a saccade is the fast eye movement, boom, boom, boom. And then a pursuit is just smooth. So if somebody walks in front of you and mm -hmm. you track them, that's going to be a pursuit. Gotcha. Yeah. Adding <laughs> to the list. <laughs> so this whole talk, I think, just is highlighting the fact that of where traditional medicine kind of fails us. Anybody, you know, what, what I see all the time in the hospital system is anybody that falls outside of that standard treatment and needing something more individualized is just pretty much left behind and not going to be served by traditional medicine, unfortunately. Our system's built in a way that, you know, nurses have a very high and doctors have a very high patient load 
and you need yeah. to be able to tick things off the list and get through just to treat everyone that's on your list. And what oh, I'm absolutely. hearing you say is a lot of these more, you know, sequelae from brain injury <laughs> is so highly individualized and needs a practitioner that has time and the knowledge and the expertise to really delve into the nitty gritty. Absolutely. So individualized treatments are extremely important for patients. And it's really important to have that gold standard, which you are very aware of, Aaron, when it comes to the hospital system, because you have a set protocol, how patients are supposed to be treated. Um, but when it comes to any type of neurological disorder that obviously doesn't have a neurosurgical approach to it and medication's not working, it's completely individualized. One concussion patient is going to be completely different than the next. And it has to do with our uniquenesses as people. Um, we have uh, different strengths, different baseline weaknesses. So if I bump my head very lightly, I might have a consequence that's significantly worse than somebody that has a major incident, of t even a TBI. Let's say they had, they were in a car accident, had a major injury, ended up with a subdural hematoma. They go under surgery. They might come out better than even I did, and I lightly bumped my head. There was nothing serious. There was no signs. I had no fracture. I didn't have a bleed, and yet I'm sitting here just devastated, and I can no longer function. So, and going back a little bit to females, so females' hormones and your menstrual cycle, as well as being in that luteinizing phase, so it just has to do with the signaling of when you're going to actually menstruate and things like that, that is very significant because if a female hits her head during that phase, the consequence of that concussion will be 100 times worse than if she wasn't in that phase. So hormones really affect a female's brain um, and also the healing ability too. So it is super individualized and it's also, um, what's the best way to explain it? So because we're talking about rewiring the brain and creating new connections, it's not something that's a quick fix. Like when I'm with patients, I'm the one treating patients and I'm at the minimum, I'm with them an hour for their, for their visit. So we're doing all sorts of exercises. And a lot of times I like to combine different simulations together because that multimodal effect gives us a bigger bang and a bigger um, neuroplasticity change, basically. Because if I incorporate the vestibular system and I incorporate the eye movement system and I'm trying to drive, let's say they're having memory impairments. So I'm going to be activating their basal ganglia th through specific eye exercises that I know that they break down in. And then I'm going to combine, let's say I do a, a vibration simulation or electrical simulation on their uh, vagus nerve. Doing all that at once gives you a larger change than if I were to do them individually, right? So not only is uh, patient care individualized, meaning what areas of their brain are weak and damaged, and also what areas are good. So the good areas are super important to know because that means that it's a system that I can activate because it has accuracy and we can create the precise, effective connection. So if something's going wrong, um, let's say anxiety. So anxiety loop, somebody has constant anxiety. I do not want to drive a nuclei. So those same nuclei are involved in eye movements. They're involved in our gait and walking, and they're also responsible for anxiety. If it's a bad pathway, I'm not going to use that eye movement that I know that's going to drive an aberrant system. It's abnormal dysfunctional. I don't want it to become more dysfunctional because you can also get 
negative neuroplasticity. So that means you're creating new connections that are not resulting in optimal function. It's mm -hmm. resulting in pathology. So it's, um, it's individualized from a patient standpoint, meaning what's wrong with their nervous system, but also very individualized on what treatment modalities are going to work best in that patient. Because I could think, oh yeah, I can use, their cerebellum looks healthy, their dorsal vermis, which is a part of the cerebellum, it looks great and healthy. I go to use it and then I recheck their autonomic nervous system and it's a negative, it's bad, I can't use that system. So, there, so there's unknowns there too. It just means that that's not gonna work for that patient. I need to find a different way. And a functional neurologist's yeah. approach is not just to concussion, right? You can no. treat you treat all different types of brain injuries because even if you can see something on a scan, it doesn't mean their injury is going to be the same as someone else with a bleed or a stroke in the same area, right? Oh, absolutely. A thousand percent. So you could have the exact same uh, stroke in the patient. And the consequence of that is going to be completely different and also a treatment. So with stroke, the idea behind stroke is so somebody has an ablative lesion, those neurons die off, right? The way you get regained function is you're going to activate neighboring neurons. So specifically with strokes, let's say it's a, a middle cerebral artery stroke or something. Um, so we're talking about cortical levels. We have somatotopic maps in the brain. So we know that that prefrontal little strip there is going to be our motor, our motor map. And then we have the strip behind it, the post-central, which is going to be your sensory map. So all those, and it's called the homunculus. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that before, um, but it's like a little man. It's kind of distorted, but it just shows how large those brain areas are in correlation to our body parts. So the head is huge, like the tongue is really big. These are all sensory areas. Um, and it's because these areas are so strongly controlled by the brain, it's super important for our human function. So if you have a stroke, you tend to see that classic spasticity, internal rotation of the upper extremity, and you have posturing. And so sometimes you have language difficulties. So we know that it's affected their temporal area and their language centers, whether it's Broca's or Wernicke's. But what you want to do is you want to activate the neighboring area close to that, and you're going to drive those neurons to grow dendrites into the area that's now been damaged. And so that when in the research with stroke recovery, when they regain function back, it doesn't mean that we've just magically, you know, and there is a little bit of um, stem cells and regrowth of neurons and stuff, but that's the very, very minor, minor portion of recovery. It's that other neighboring neurons will go in and they'll grow their dendrites into that area that's been damaged, and it'll then take on that new function. So somebody then gains their function back. And it's it's pretty awesome to see it happen too. Yeah, that is cool. Mm -hmm. So beyond I'm just to know. Go ahead, Erin. I was gonna say, beyond just um physical symptoms that people might have, you mentioned the posturing and we talked about um pots where you're gonna feel it. Um, how would people know they really need to be reaching out? Yeah, so that's a really good question, especially nowadays because a lot of things are idiopathic. So some of the um, easiest way to kind of guide patients um, in terms of saying, do I need treatment, um, is when we think about the symptoms, because it's a lot easier to understand the symptoms than it is to actually get an accurate diagnosis or to know what's wrong with you because of the fact that 
um, a lot of times it's hard to categorize. And if you don't find the right provider, you don't get the right diagnosis. So some of the symptoms um, you hear pretty often are going to be headaches. So migraines are very, very common too. We know a lot of people have headaches. Pressure in the head. Um, you'll always get people just saying, I don't feel right. Or um, they have difficulty concentrating or difficulty remembering. Fatigue is a big one. So chronic fatigue is very, very common. Sometimes people will have like drowsiness and confusion. Uh, sleep and insomnia is another large factor that we hear pretty common. Do you guys hear that often? People have sleep yes, issues? Yes, sleep mm-hmm. issues being an issue. Actually, we just recently had an interview with um, a researcher at The Ohio State University who's doing research on the correlation between brain injury, sleep deprivation, and Alzheimer's. Pretty fascinating. Yep, absolutely. So um, feeling in a fog or brain fog is another common one. Feeling slowed down. Um, Then you have the sensitivity to noise and sound. Those are some other symptoms. I'm trying to think here. Dizziness is a big one. So, and it's, dizziness is kind of encompassing, meaning it could be lightheadedness. It could be that they're spinning. It could be that just momentarily, sometimes they feel like they're rocking or swaying. Um, I don't know if you've heard of mal debarkment, but that's another disorder that's underdiagnosed and undertreated. Um, They go on a boat and their vestibular system basically um, has a maladaption. And so when they get off the boat, they still feel like they're literally Ah. rocking and swaying and bobbing. Yikes. I know. So then you'll hear sometimes nausea and vomiting. Um, Depression, anxiety is another big one. Sometimes people don't think... um, you know, if somebody has tried to be treated by depression medication and they haven't gotten better, it's it's really important for them to uh, consider looking for a functional neurologist. And not all functional neurologists will um, treat depression, but it's what's really great with depression is that um, if you have a concussion, your likelihood of having depression is significantly high. So it tells you right there that there's a lot of um, brain areas that will be responsible for depression. But also it's very easy when when you do a neurological exam on a patient, if the if it's not from um, brain deficit or the brain being um, damaged or having problems firing, it you'll know right away. So if that person comes in and everything is great, then they're, they're not in the right place to be treated by functionalology. They need to go to a psychiatrist to be treated. But there's so many patients that they're not meant to be treated by a psychiatrist and they don't respond well with medication. And it's a great idea for them to look into functionalology. How can you tell a, that depression is a it, brain so the net so the networks the networks within the brain that control our emotion and mental state um, they're going to be your amygdala it's a big emotional center it's, and it feeds a lot of information to that basal ganglia and then it goes up to the cortex specifically that frontal lobe and the thalamus and so the nuclei involved in emotionality and our mental state of positive well-being are highly involved in working memory in cognitive tasks there's large overloops um, and so somebody's gait, the way they walk, their arms swing, the speed and stride length. And then also if you were to challenge them, um, let's say you give them a dual task and cognitive task. A typical is um, every while you're walking, you're going to say every other month of the year out loud. That's a typical one. Um, but what it does, it brings out pathology. And somebody who has great balance all of a sudden has a freeze or they lose an arm swing and their stride length gets really small. 
Um, and you'll see those things in depression. And so if you see that, like we already know the way to treat that, you treat those areas, those areas overlap with the same areas involved in our emotions and mental state. And then all of a sudden the patient feels so much better. And, you know, they have this out- outlook on life and positivity and it gets overlooked because, it, you know, there are, um, it's mental health is a serious, serious thing. And uh, some patients need to be on medications. They need to be on medications for the rest of their life. But there's a lot of patients that don't, um, and they also tend to not respond well to medication. So it's, uh, I, I feel it's very important to get that message out there. I agree. That's that was one that was incredibly uh, difficult for me. I had an acute subdural hematoma. I had no idea that mental health would be impacted by my brain injury, and I kind of spiraled actually after I was released from the hospital, but I had never seen any statistics about depression and brain injury. And it took a couple months before I randomly saw a statistic on social media. And immediately it was like the light bulb. I was like, this makes so much sense. What I am going through does not feel like me, (laughs) but I just had not connect, made the connection. Um, Hugely, hugely. So I, I like to sing that one from the rooftop because I think the more people that hear it, the better, because you never know. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And so what's crazy is we have magnificent research on this too. So your dorsal or prefrontal cortex is a very important area when it comes to depression. And there's tons of studies showing that um, recovered, people who have recovered from depression versus people who relapse, you, we've shown on fMRI that those that dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex doesn't light up at all. But what's crazy is that our same, like a separate study using fMRI on concussion patients, the major area that is damaged first is that dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex across the board damaged first. And so when somebody is still symptomatic, but performing well. So like uh, one of the studies is on your, a working memory test. So a patient that is was concussed, then they had rehabilitation, they completely healed, they're no longer symptomatic, they do this working memory test, they score great, and on the fMRI, they use their dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex like they're supposed to. Then you have the concussion patient who still has symptoms, they score very similar in working memory. So they score the same. So this is like a neurocognitive test. They score the same as the normal patient now, but yet they don't use the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. They use uh, an area in the left temporal lobe as a compensatory mechanism to carry out the function. So they look like they're normal. They carry out this function just as normal as somebody who's actually healed. And yet their dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is still not working. And so that's a big deal because there's so much we can do to activate that area and yet that person's going to suffer and continue to live with depression because we know it's it's a it's one of those areas that's very prevalent um in terms of not working well in depressed patients that's fascinating i mean i think you know we think about the body compensating for things like in i'm a runner so this is what i think of like you have you know a gait issue and your body finds a way of working around it but we don't really pay that much attention to the brain and how it might compensate for um, where, like the areas where it's struggling. Oh yeah. So the brain is probably the, the best at compensating. It's literally the way it works. Um, and it, it's a positive thing because it allows us to, you know, be, maybe we're exposed to a toxin in our environment, maybe we get a concussion. And so we recover. Um, and that's vital for us to continue on living and feeling okay. But what happens is 
um, concussion after a concussion or whatever's causing the issue, your brain's going to go and it's going to recruit an area that's going to compensate for that function. And then you'll continue living, but your brain is weak. You already have issues going on. You just aren't symptomatically feeling it. And then you have another concussion, or maybe you're in an auto accident, you have a whiplash injury. So this kind of goes on throughout our life until that very last issue, you know, whether it's a bleed, whether it's a stroke, whether it's a minor bump on the head, and then all all these symptoms, so all those compensated areas are, you know, they're they're not working well. So that last thing puts you over the edge, and you don't have a strong area to come in and compensate for that new lesion, and you're just you're all over the place. You feel everything, and you feel terrible, and so that's a lot of times where you see the patients that are finally um, seeking treatment. So it wasn't really the last head injury they had or last infection they had. It was kind of accumulation of things that happened in their lifespan that led to it. Yeah. That's a good segue. I think we have so many listeners who will probably have heard that long list of symptoms that you set like gone through and say that I can totally relate to that. But now I'm a year or two years or three years out and I never was referred to a functional neurologist or I feel like I might have missed that window. What do you say to that person? I think I'm that person. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think so we know our brain is so important. So it's really important to keep it healthy because so many things can go wrong. Um, and especially the natural aging process is that our memory and cognition goes down south. And so we want to prevent it from going that direction. So if you have any symptoms, even if you're like, wow, my symptoms are way less than they used to be, I'm doing fine, you know, it, I still encourage you to look for a functional neurologist um, because of the fact that you want to get your brain as strong as possible because you don't want to stop living. You know, you want to play your, your favorite sports. You want, you know, being in a vehicle, we're already at risk of something happening. Um, and you also, so a lot of times people have to eliminate things. So if your brain's not doing well, that blood brain barrier's not doing well, it's connected to your gut, people have leaky gut issues. And so they have a lot of food sensitivities, they can't eat a lot of things. And it's sometimes easier You think, oh, I'll just eliminate the food. Um, but if that's the case, it's much better to get your brain nice and healthy, get that blood brain barrier strong so that you're able to, you know, live a vital life, happy and not have to be so cautious about what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So what does treatment look like with a functional so that's neurologist? A, that's a, it's, a, it's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so it, it's a lot of things, right? So, and it's non-invasive. And um, it's a lot of times we're going to combine. So I, we do VNG testing. We measure eye movement. We measure eye movement speed, the time of initiation, the accuracy of, of an eye movement. And then we also measure where in their retinotopic maps. So retinotopic maps are basically maps that we store in our brain of our visual world. And so when I get up from my chair and I go to stand up and I want to walk somewhere, my brain already has mapped out where that desk is, where the door is, where the hallway is, so I never have to think about it. And so it's constantly updating. Um, and that retinotopic map, it feeds into so many areas of, our, of the brain because of the fact that it's communicating with our somatotopic body maps. Um, and so going back to like treatment. So if a patient breaks down, let's say it's 30 degrees up into the right area, um, and let's say we're having a pursuit and they have a psychotic intrusion, which just means that they're using a like fast eye movement to catch up to a target. Well, that's very, very significant because not because, oh, it's an eye movement, 
but because of all the nuclei in the brain that control eye movements. It's not just a few nuclei, it is so many and nuclei that also control cognition, also control emotionality, your mental thought system, your motor patterns. So um, normally you think this is completely unrelated, but it's absolutely related. Um, Parkinson's is always a good example because of the fact that we understand Parkinson's well. We see that they get these changes in gait speed and they have camptochormic posturing and shuffling gait. But the big pathology of Parkinson's is that nigra and that dopamine center is communicating and, and it's right in that basal ganglia with all the other nuclei that generate eye movement. And so you see saccadic intrusion, you see loss of vertical upward eye movements, um, square wave jerks, things like that, that you go and you fix and those things get better and all those other nuclei along that pathway and all the other neurons get better too because they're now being activated properly. Um, so going back to treatment, it's going to be a combination of, you know, sometimes it's eye movement, sometimes it's different vestibular stimulation and it's not vestibular stimulation like the patient looks at the dot and they move their head. Majority of times the doctor needs to be doing the passive head movements and using their VOR um, to create accuracy within those systems. And then you work up to them being able to do it, but you start, it's the biggest key is doing things accurately so that you're creating these neuroplastic changes precisely. Uh, electric stimulation is often used. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's sort of vastly different and um, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's basically finding the right sensory system to activate, to feed into the areas that need to be kind of turned on. And sometimes it's to calm down a certain area. Sometimes you really want to activate inhibitory pathways, meaning the brain, when brains are damaged, they tend to fire too high and they tend to let in too much information and you want to calm down those centers. Hmm. Honestly, hearing all this makes me, uh, you know, like 98% of the time, I feel like I'm a normal person. It's like I have the occasional brain fog day. But hearing you talk about this makes me want to go see a functional neurologist because I'm like, what are the things that are happening that I'm just not connecting with, like the remnants of my brain injury? I'm curious. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely that's pretty fantastic. If, yeah. And if you're, you feel like 90, 98% of the time you feel decent that means there's there's a high probability that your brain has healed pretty well you know if if the brain fog was you would have more cognitive slips type of thing and sometimes forget your train of thought and it doesn't seem like you have that at all so that's a big <laughs> not today <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's how it is too and that's and so here's a, a tip for people in general so um the biggest thing with fatigue and brain fog is that if your brain is not doing perfect, it's going to be, it's firing too high. So you're not inhibiting stuff. So people have sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound. And the reason is, is that those areas at thalamus is at a high threshold. So it takes a little bit of information to come in and have this major impact. So to eating often. So the brain does not store glucose. And so people don't realize like our cells in our body can store glucose. It can tap into that glucose storage and then it has glucose. Brain doesn't. So you want to snack often good, something that's a good protein source. Um, and you also want to take those like five to 10 minute um, breaks throughout the day. And you want to take them frequently. So just like close your eyes, sit still, breathe. If you want to listen to like a meditation app, if you want it to be completely quiet, those five minutes are so powerful because the second a neuron fires 
and it, you can't, you're already fatigued and you're taxed on all level. You're not getting proper blood supply and you don't have glucose. That neuron's going to fire and they die if it does not get glucose. The two things it needs is glucose and oxygen. Oxygen is supplied in blood. So it, those rests allow your brain to catch up to that metabolic demand, allows blood to start get into all the areas in the brain and allows you in those snacks, allow you to get some glucose in your blood. Um, and it's much easier on the brain. Whereas if people that push, push, push all the time, it's, it's not a positive when it comes to brain health. That's a good reminder. And to our <laughs> listeners, and I am including myself in this group, if you needed a reminder that those things are important, you heard it here from a functional <laughs> neurologist. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know how else you need to learn that lesson, like mm -hmm. <laughs> what higher authority you need. But And I'm learning this breaks. lesson once again. I mean, this week yes. was a hard one for me and Mariah. We both, um, I think, had lots of challenges at work this week. Um, and what I did to compensate was rather than take my rest, I just pushed through, pushed through. Me too. And what yeah, happened I was like, by I don't have time for week? five minutes. Exactly. Yeah. And what happened yeah, by the done. end of the week, I felt like crap, depressed. Yeah. I was convinced. I'm convinced still like, oh, I'm going to fail at this next task. They want me to lead this thing and I'm never going to be able to do it. And that yeah. was not my pre-brain injury self. Yeah, I had anxiety. Yeah, I had depression, but I had hope that I could do something about it. Whereas now when you neglect those rests, it just pff, yep. like, oh, I can't do it. Yeah. The other thing that's um, helpful and it's become like a trend is those breathing apps. Have you guys ever seen that? Mm -hmm. Like there's like, there's like breathing apps that I haven't actually used it, but they like have a timer on it and they, they walk you through the importance of breathing so that you take a moment of rest yeah. and it, and it reminds you to breathe. Those are soup. So people have been using, they love it. They think it's great. Well, the reason why it's great is number one, as a population, we all kind of stink at breathing because we're so go, go, go. Mm -hmm. And like our, we never get enough oxygen into our lungs. But then it also, when you're resting like that and doing like a meditation type of app, you're allowing that parasympathetic nervous system to come on. That's a vagal stimulation. Um, and it's, it's really powerful. So that's another thing, especially when you're, that situation you're talking about at the hospital where you're go, 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 and you have all these new projects, it comes really in handy and it allows in that time that you're getting more oxygen in your blood because you're breathing and you're resting and you're letting your whole nervous system kind of wind down a bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I think the number of people who we've talked to have said uh, meditation has been a help to them. It makes sense. There's a yeah. focus on the breath. Yeah, absolutely. And I love hearing, um, you know, you're you're making me feel more helpful, hopeful, because honestly, I was starting to think like, okay, I was I had you know times of depression in my life before my brain injury. Since I can't seem to get out of it, and it's just psych. I need to keep talking. You know, I have a therapist, I have a coach. I talk for at least an hour plus every week about all my feelings. And it's not getting better. And when you mentioned the fact that, you know, you test that by someone walking, you know, can they walk and do the months every other month? I could not do that. I would have to stop and think and really try hard at that. So um, you're giving me a little hope that maybe I need Good. to find someone. <laughs> no, you you absolutely should. Because, you know, a lot of times it happens too, because you think like, well, was this my baseline? Is this right. just 
who I am? Mm -hmm. Majority of the case, the answer is no, it's not. And especially if you have any history of a brain injury. Um, And so like little, little things go so far. So I I really do think you absolutely need to find a functional neurologist by you. But another, um, another thing that's really easy for you to do is the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is also stimulated when we do a complex balance exercise. So let's say you go to the gym or you could probably buy a standing vibration plate for your house, but doing a standing vibration plate and like um, while you're on it, start thinking of every word that starts with the letter P or try to name all the animals that you could think of. So they're adding a cognitive simulation with standing vibration and that activates your dorsal prefrontal cortex, the same area that's involved with anxiety and depression. So little things can be done at home. Definitely do not get... Um, going to a functionalologist, they're, they'll nail it. They'll they'll treat you. You'll feel significantly better. But even if you don't, do not get helpless. There's a lot of things that yeah. another reason why exercise is you know makes people feel better. And yeah, yeah. So what would you say to someone who's listening and saying, "Yes, I think I do need to find a functional neurologist." Where would they start that search? So the the best thing is to look. So. I owe everything to Dr. Carrick. Um, he was really the founder of the field of functional neurology, and he's very much pioneered the way for um, everybody else. And it, there's two different colleges. Of, so you could look for a regular functionalologist, or you can look for a um, fellow of the American Board of Brain Injury and Rehabilitation. It just means that they have a much more training when it comes to whether it's acquired or traumatic brain injuries and treating them. Um, And I will post the link um, for people who are watching this to two different websites that will give you a doctor locator so that you can actually look up, hey, you know, is there somebody close to me that I can go see? Awesome. Thank you so much. I feel like this will be so helpful to so many people. (laughs) And we'll put that link in our show notes as well. We definitely need that. Um, And Dr. Gabella, I know you are part of a – Brain Center. How could people find you? Okay. My practice is called Precision Brain Center, and we are located in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we'll also post the website. You can absolutely go on there. Um, There's quite a bit of content kind of explaining disorder, so that might be helpful for people to see um, if they're trying to figure out what functional neurology treats. And you would be amazingly surprised because even when it like cerebral palsy, it's typically thought of, you know, the child suffered hypoxia when they're at birth and there's nothing we could do about it. But there is a lot you can do. And it's, it doesn't mean that you're, you might return back to what a normal person would have, but the ability to walk around, the ability to feed yourself, that's significant if you've ever lost or if you don't have that ability. So yeah, and then there's some simple things like uh, vertigo and dizziness, things that are, you know, and and one patient is really super easy to treat and the next patient it's coming from uh, more global connections that are wrong and it takes a little bit longer to treat. But generally it's Um, I know for me, and I know the way I was taught, I don't want the patient to be reliant on me. I want to get them better as fast as possible and get them back into the world living their happy life. You know, I'm not a person, I, I want to treat you fast and, you know, let you get back to living. Is functional neurology something that you see insurances helping to cover or? I don't, unfortunately. Um, and it's the same kind of thing going on with functional medicine too. Um, 
hopefully one day we see that catch up, but more of your preventative measures um, of care are just not covered because it's not that gold standard. Um, and so, and that's another barrier that we see a lot because of the fact um, majority of functionality is going to be, it is cash because it's not covered um, by health insurance. And then you have the patients that, you know, they might not be able to afford out of pocket. So their only option is going that, um, you know, medicine route because insurance covers it and things like yeah. that. So it's definitely, um, it's a huge barrier. And I, and I hope in the future, we really see that insurance does begin covering this, that the awareness builds and people know that there's options um, when they're suffering from neurological disorders. That's why I like to throw out as many um, helpful factors when it comes to them trying to get better on their own. I love vibration. It's an easy thing. Handheld vibration, standing vibration is super powerful. And the reason being is our body maps are are so important. That somatotopic map in the brain is so important for things like um, cognition and anxiety. And so even though you might have other areas of the brain that are struggling, if you send more proprioceptive information from a handheld vibration device, that's going to, that's going to have a positive impact, you know, so you won't feel symptomatically better right away, but it makes a difference. Um, breathing is big. Oxygen, oxygen is really important. Um, I know they're like having oxygen bars now, so it's kind of like the cool thing. Um, hyperbaric is, um, it's okay. I mean, some patients it's great. Some pa patients it's catastrophic. Um, and that just has to do with if their mesencephalon is firing super high. Um, and so these are the patients that are going to be highly sensitive. If a patient has sensitivity, light and sound, I would never recommend them for to just jump right into a hyperbaric. Um, but it's still, you know, some need oxygen. Hyperbaric is wonderful. So that's a hit or miss. But the, the biggest thing, I wouldn't be afraid of doing hyperbaric because one hyperbaric treatment is not going to um, cause them to feel terrible. So when they start, they agree to do like 10, I don't even know what it is, 10 or 15. And at the end of it, then, then they feel the consequence and they're like, oh no, what happened? Mm. So as long as you try something um, and just be very in tune to how your body's feeling, if, and let me tell you, Doctors don't know everything, right? So the patient knows way more than the doctor. You know your body. You know what you've been suffering. Um, I really encourage people to be as find a doctor that wants to listen because I'm sure you know this, Aaron, but a lot of the diagnosis comes from a patient's history, right? Mm -hmm. They tell you almost everything and then you follow up with your physical exam and then you, you know exactly where it's coming from. But yeah, so you find a doctor that listens, um, and then also walk away from any doctor visit. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a functional neurologist telling them you need to do this treatment or it's a doctor saying you need to take this medication. We have Google. So, you know, Google your medications, look at the side effects and you make the decision for yourself. And I know it's sometimes you're limited to what insurance will cover. But yeah, it's really important to be your, especially with neurological disorders, be your own advocate because you get underlooked often. Yeah. We've been saying that for a long time, but it's really nice to hear that coming from a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. I have yeah. to say. Dr. Gabella, yeah. thank you so much for joining us You're today. So 
This has been a fantastic conversation. And I wish we could keep talking for hours longer, but I don't know how long people would stay with us. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to be able to talk to you guys. And I'll also provide my email. So if anybody has questions, they want to reach out. They'll also have my website. And anytime you guys have questions, I would love to follow up with you and we can chat another time. But it's definitely a pleasure. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Gabella. So for anyone looking for more um, from Dr. Gabella, please visit her website at precisionbraincenter.com. Also, um, go to the show notes and you'll be able to find those links for how you can find a functional neurologist near you. So this is Erin with my co-host Mariah signing out. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. In case you're wondering what Erin and I do for a living, it's not podcasting. I work in marketing, Erin's a nurse, and this is just a side project that we love. We really do enjoy doing this, and we've enjoyed being part of the community and building up a group of listeners. You guys probably don't even realize how much you help us out um, just by supporting us. If you were looking to do a little bit extra, uh, we would love to have your ratings on Apple or whichever podcasting service that you use. Or if you hear us talk about a product on the podcast, we do include those links to Amazon in our show notes on our website. Your purchase after you click on the link just gives us a tiny little kickback. Nothing much, but it helps us pay our bills. And if you are thinking, well, this isn't enough, we want to do a little bit more on our website at www.makingheadwaypodcast.com. We have a donation page. Any proceeds we receive, we give 10% to our favorite brain injury nonprofit of the moment. So if you are looking to do a little bit more, that would be a great way to support us. Again, we appreciate you guys oh so much. Thanks so much for your time and your ongoing support. We love our listeners and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean. 